You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The Insular Cases are a series of rulings from the 1900s establishing that people in U.S. territories don't have the same constitutional rights as other Americans. The cases are almost universally described as racist, even by some Supreme Court justices. In a concurrence in a case last year, Justice Neil Gorsuch called for the insular cases to be overruled, describing them as shameful and based on ugly racial stereotypes. Counsel, if that's true, why shouldn't we just uh, admit that insular cases were incorrectly decided? Fast forward to this Monday. Civil rights groups urged the court to take a case involving birthright citizenship that could undo the insular cases. But the justices turned the case down. My guest is Anne Lofaso, a constitutional law professor at the West Virginia University College of Law. Anne, tell us about this challenge brought by three Samoans who live in Utah. So basically the three Samoans and a nonprofit organization are saying that they're entitled to birthright citizenship by virtue of the fact that they were born in Samoa. After the Civil War, the 14th Amendment made clear under the Citizenship Clause that anyone born in the United States is entitled to birthright citizenship and was really initially intended to make sure that former slaves were absolutely citizens and entitled to all the rights of a citizen. Then what happened was after the Spanish-American War, 1898, the United States acquired territories that are overseas. And there were a series of cases at the turn of the century, some say six, some say nine, some say more than that. But in any event, a small series of cases that stated that this was not necessarily the case and that these overseas territories that were acquired specifically in the Spanish-American War, the United States was allowed to govern them as colonies. And this is what many people believe was reading the power to colonize into the United States Constitution. 
So they want these cases to be overturned. So it's clear that the United States doesn't have this power to colonize. The fact that they are not U.S. citizens means they can't vote, they can't serve on juries or run for state or federal office. So these insular cases... Conservative Justice Neil Gorsuch and Liberal Justice Sonia Sotomayor have both expressed concern about the insular cases remaining on the books. But neither of them dissented here. Well, there's a couple of things going on here. They may not have had the votes to overturn the precedent, so why even go there? There were also a lot of problems with this case. Samoa is very unique. It wasn't part of the original insular cases. This case can be decided without referring to them. So they could decide this case purely on constitutional grounds and not go to the insular cases. There is no split in the circuits on this issue either. Six courts have looked at it. All six have agreed. Second of all, when the Supreme Court takes a case, it doesn't just take it because it thinks it's an important federal issue. There's what's a good vehicle for deciding this case. That means there aren't any extraneous issues that could prevent them from coming into a conclusion. They don't even have to look at the insular cases to decide this. So that's why it would be considered a poor vehicle for revisiting the insular cases. Politics are also involved here. Might that be another reason the court didn't take this case? Currently, there are negotiations between the United States and Samoa about how to best preserve the Samoan way of life, which I hope I'm not mispronouncing this, but it's called Fa Samoa. And so there's a lot of concern among the Samoans and the government of Samoa that a birthright citizenship might disrupt their way of life. The Samoan people right now have not reached a consensus as to whether or not they want to have citizenship and There's a streamlined process for people born in Samoa to become U.S. citizens. So that means that many Samoans might say, well, we still don't want the birthright. If an individual wants to become a U.S. citizen, they can. It will be very easy. And I know many of us in the United States might think, why would anyone not want to be American (laughs) citizens? But some people don't. So I think that's also important to respect. And that was one of the points that the brief for the Simone government made is like, why would we want this court by judicial fiat to impose U.S. citizenship on every person born in Samoa where right now there is not a political consensus? So it would almost be colonization in a different way by judicial fiat, saying now you are automatically U.S. citizens. And so there is this political dimension that perhaps the court didn't want to weigh in on. Everything I've read about the insular cases says racist. Gorsuch said ugly racial stereotypes. I mean, some of the language in some of those cases is sort of astonishing. Isn't that something that the Supreme Court should want to overrule? Yeah, it should, but we don't want the Supreme Court to overreach on an issue because even though in this case it might be a good thing, we don't want them to then feel emboldened to overreach. I mean, especially they might be gun-shy after what happened last term where they didn't have to reach Roe versus Wade at all. I mean, Justice Roberts made that clear in his his concurrence in Dobbs, and yet they overturned Roe versus Wade. They got tremendous criticism. Many people are now, more than ever, are saying that the court is illegitimate. So it's really important for the courts to take a more 
conservative, by conservative, I don't mean politically conservative, but what I mean by that approach is a more cautious approach. If they're going to undo precedent, they have to do it when the time is right, when it's squarely presented. Otherwise, even if it's, it's welcome at that moment, it allows them to do it in other times when it's much more unpopular, for example, in Dobbs. The co-counsel in the case said the Supreme Court's refusal to reconsider the insular cases today continues to reflect that equal justice under law does not mean the same for the 3.6 million residents of U.S. territories as it does for everyone else. Does he have a point? Yeah, I mean, he has a point, and that's an important point. And the underlying problem of colonization is a significant point, especially right now, with the death of the Queen of England, that issue became very newsworthy. And the whole history of colonization is an ugly history. So yeah, that's a really important substantive point. But, and I'm not necessarily defending what the Supreme Court did. What I'm saying is why I think they did what they did, which is this idea that the case has to be presented to them. Let me give you a ridiculous example. If this case were about something that had to do with corporate law and nothing to do with territories, you wouldn't want them to say, oh, and by the way, the insular cases need to be overruled. Here, it obviously is much more related to the insular cases. They could reach it. But my guess is, the charitable guess, is that they want it to be squarely presented. The other problem is they may not have the votes. This is where I'm concerned. What if Gorsuch wants to overrule it, Sotomayor, maybe the other two liberals, but the others don't. So they only have four votes. And if that's the case, it would be worse to then reaffirm those cases. So that could be the other one. Another thing is they they knew they were going to reaffirm the lower court's decision here, but they were going to avoid this issue anyway because they didn't have the votes on this particular issue. So I think that's much more likely, even though, yeah, sure, there is definitely a point that these are racist cases. There's a lot of problems with these cases. And we need to come to a reckoning with our past and our treatment of different areas that we have so-called, and this word is even used in some of the briefs, conquered. So I think that is important. The Tenth Circuit said it was for Congress to bestow the privilege of U.S. citizenship. Yeah, that's the precedent right now is that this would be Congress's job and certainly different treaties that have said that. But the Samoan people under principles of self-determination right now have not reached a consensus as to whether or not they want to have citizenship. You know, we're just going to have to wait till another day to see what they do about the insular cases, which obviously are, are problematic. But there were also problems that anyway, the Supreme Court decided in this case could have been considered racist as well. So it's a very complicated area. And this was not called a clean vehicle to decide these cases. Thanks so much, Anne. That's Professor Anne Lofaso of the West Virginia University College of Law. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. 
Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Steeple and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Steeple's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Steeple last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Rishi Sunak will be Britain's next prime minister. The 42-year-old member of the Conservative Party will be sworn in as the country's third leader in less than two months and its first ever prime minister of color. It is the greatest privilege of my life to be able to serve the party I love and give back to the country I owe so much to. Joining me to discuss the new prime minister is Ambassador Robert Holliman, the president and CEO of Crowell and Mooring International. He served as Deputy United States Trade Representative from 2014 to 2017. So what's your take on Rishi Sunak as the new prime minister? This is very much a UK decision to make and the People who are in the rooms as they're making the decisions are clearly the you know the best place to understand how Rishi Sunak will um, serve as the prime minister. With that said, I think we can see kind of looking across the Atlantic from the U.S., um, we can see that there's a significant need for the U.K. to reassert. Uh, a level and show the world a level of stability. Clearly, that um, can often be best accomplished with somebody who is a known player, but who is, um, as they may determine at the time, carrying less of the baggage that some of the other potential contenders would have. Um, And so I think in that sense, you know, he's a known player. He's understood um, how this affects domestic politics within the UK are something I wouldn't be in a position to, um, to to comment on, but how this affects the UK standing with the US or with the rest of the world community, I think the US um, will be um, uh, pleased to see somebody come into place with the hope that he will um, have a, um, you know, a, a less rocky tenure than his immediate predecessor. I mean, one of the things I think is a hallmark and a strength of the U.S.-U.K. relationship is that it can, you know, weather 
um, a variety of storms and um, turbulence through elections, whether they're party elections or national elections in either country. Uh, so I think we'll move on uh, well with um, Rishi Sunak. So he said today there's no doubt we face profound economic challenges. Can you describe some of the economic challenges that the U.K. is facing right now? Sure. I think they're really threefold. Um, one, there's the purely domestic U.K. economic challenges with rising inflation rates, with recent needs for intervention into the British economy, um, and um, the high costs that are still associated with the uh, not only the you know, the lingering aftermaths of the COVID pandemic, but also the lingering economic challenges as a result of Brexit. Um, So they have significant domestic challenges uh, that are um, creating concerns, not only in the marketplace uh, within the UK, but also on the part of UK citizens. I think the second part of it is how does the UK hold up in light of the rest of the world. Um, You know, they're the fifth largest economy in the world, so they matter enormously in terms of the global economy. Uh, They matter significantly in terms of their economic and political stability. Um, And simply for the U.S. and the U.K., they're a key ally of the United States, not only on economics, but on national security and defense uh, and support of democracy. So they play an outsized role um, and any lack of stability economically or politically in the UK is certainly a source of concern for the US. And finally, I think in a world where we see an increasing um, number of authoritarian regimes uh, that are gaining um, power, um, the ability to have a democratic regime in the UK uh, and a stable regime is important for sort of the global discussions that are happening. I'm not talking about small p politics discussions, but I'm just talking about having a strong voice by which the UK as such a large economy can speak up on the world stage on issues that go beyond the borders of the UK. So those are the key issues that I see at play. I think the most important ones that the UK is working on now are on their domestic ones. How do they restore confidence at home? Um, How do they um, stabilize their economy? How do they manage to deal with some of the inflation issues and try to regain the growth they're looking for? Um, The others are certainly hugely important, certainly for the US. But I suspect what the U.K. is focused on right now is how do they right the ship at home um, and give give the kind of stability they need. A trade relationships now. Well, it's substantial. And, you know, the good news, I think it's it's, say it's sort of it's largely unaffected by any of the recent political turmoils within the U.K. Um, You know, it's a large trade relationship. The U.S is accounts for nearly 20% of all trade by the UK. So we are a enormous trading partner for the UK. The US is obviously a much larger economy, um, but UK trade is 5% of total US trade. 
So this is an extremely important relationship. I think another factor that really underscores the importance of it is around foreign direct investment, uh, which is another key element of trade. And the UK is the number one destination by country for foreign investment coming out of the US. Um, it's nearly a trillion dollars uh, as of last year. And the UK is investing uh, merely half a trillion dollars in the US in um, 2020. So as a source of both bilateral trade, but a source of the investment that each country is making in the other, it's enormous. And the good news is that that continues to be a strong trade relationship and a source of economic stability between our two countries. I think the question, though, that that poses is, does that relationship between the U.S. and the U.K. get better? And how has the Brexit vote and the aftermath of Brexit affected the U.S. and the U.K.? And there, I think the jury is still out. Uh, and in fact, I would say that the U.K. has not obtained even more favorable benefits in trade with the U.S. or other countries that they had hoped to obtain following their departure from the EU. The U.K. and the U.S. were negotiating a bilateral free trade agreement during the Trump administration. What happened to that? Where does that stand? That bilateral free trade agreement um, really fell by the wayside, largely um, as a result of domestic priorities within the United States. Liz Trust had been the trade um, secretary for and minister for the UK when those discussions started. So certainly she had a history of working on those discussions. Um, I think what happened in the United States was really twofold. One is that the trade promotion authority that the U.S. Congress had in place that would enable, whether it was the Trump administration or the Biden administration, to negotiate new free trade agreements uh, on favorable terms, that authority expired in the middle of 2021. So in the absence of that authority, it is difficult for any uh, White House to negotiate a free trade agreement, whether with the UK or any other country. And those really are the trade promotion authority practices that Congress imposes on itself to say that if a trade agreement is brought back to them, that they will approve it on an, an expedited approve or disapprove, or to say they retain the ability to disapprove, but that they would act on it on an um, expedited time frame, and that they would consider it as a totality of an agreement not subject to the amendment process, which Congress uses for most typical legislation. So that trade promotion authority was in place. Uh, it was put in place um, when I was in office in the Obama administration, but it expired in the middle of last year. And so without trade promotion authority, it becomes very difficult for a White House to undertake a new free trade negotiation um, with confidence that they could successfully conclude it and then actually get it approved 
um, by Congress in the implementing legislation. So that expired. I think the second thing is that the Biden administration has really been focused on all series of domestic priorities, uh, whether it was the Inflation Reduction Act or um, it was the infrastructure bill or it was focused on um, clean energy, um, other health matters. And so it really has not been a top of mind priority for the Biden administration to negotiate the agreement, particularly in the absence of trade promotion authority. So it's really um, foundered uh, and it's sort of on a sidetrack now, largely because of U.S. domestic issues. I think the question is posed that, you know, could it be revived in the next Congress? You know, that remains to be seen. But for the moment, the EU and the UK both have relationships with the US that are substantially similar. The UK doesn't have anything less favorable than the EU has with the US, nor does the UK have anything more favorable. We don't have a comprehensive trade agreement with the EU and the UK. There are a series of smaller agreements that are in place that range from things like pharmaceuticals to certain types of machines to wine and spirits. Those we've negotiated with the UK just like we have with the EU. So what would it take for the U.S. to negotiate a trade agreement with the UK? I think it would take three things. One, it would take the U.S. Congress deciding that they wanted to adopt a narrow trade promotion authority that would say that the U.S. could negotiate a free trade agreement with the U.K. and the U.K. alone. And that would be the easiest, most surgical way in which the Congress could act to say that they supported a trade agreement with the U.K., even if they weren't willing to say, as they're not, that they would support a whole series of other free trade agreements with other countries. Secondly, it would have to be viewed in the economic interest by both the U.S. and the U.K., but particularly the U.S., to take that on in a time of the coming year where we're certainly going to have a series of economic challenges, including inflation in both markets. And three, I think it would have to take a meeting of the minds that involved not only the business community, but the labor community and NGOs to say that there was something about the long-term special relationship between the UK and the US that needed to be coupled with a special trade agreement. It's entirely possible. I don't think it's probable. Thanks for being on the show. That's Ambassador Robert Holliman of Crowell and Mooring. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.